Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Levno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test-specific podcast. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing the GABA-A receptor standalone antibody test with Dr. Andrew McKeown. Before we get into the details of the test, Dr. McKeown, could you provide our listeners with a little bit of background on your role here at Mayo Clinic? Sure. Uh, thank you, Ben. I am a neurologist by primary training, but I also have trained in laboratory medicine, so I have a dual role at Mayo between the uh, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, where I'm a director of the Neuromonology Lab and uh, a clinical neurologist, and I specialize in neuromonology. Perfect. I think that will be really important context for our listeners. The field of autoimmunology, as we say, is rapidly evolving. Can you explain kind of that field and, and maybe give an introduction of how GABA-A is important as this field develops? So for many years now, there have been biomarkers available for the diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis. So specifically IgG biomarkers such as NMDA receptor, LGI-1 and GFAP antibodies. The GABA-A receptor antibody was described approximately 10 years ago now, or maybe a little longer, it has a very specific clinical phenotype associated with it. And it's a very immunotherapy responsive disease if treated early on. Uh, I have seen a few of these patients myself. It's less common than, than NMDA receptor autoimmunity, but does have some representation across the lifespan and does seem to be a little overrepresented in children as compared to adults. Thanks, Dr. McKeown. I think we really want to get into some of the details of you said it's very specific, immunotherapy responsive, relatively common, and especially found in children. So let's get into the details of GABA-A. Maybe start with the assay itself. What type of a methodology are we using? Let's just start there, Dr. McKeown. Yes, sure. We are launching a cell-based assay for this. So it's a, a cell line that's transfected with the alpha-1 beta-3 subunits of the GABA-A receptor. And then we test serum or CSF on that cell line and on a non-transfected or mock-transfected control. And then we look for antibody binding using an anti-human fluorescently tagged antibody. And we can basically see if, the, if there is fluorescence to the cell surface, then that's indicative of positivity. And then we check that it's not binding to the non-transfected cells. And that kind of gives us a, a lab diagnosis for this. Will there be a reflex, Dr. McKeown, to confirm positivity, or is that all kind of captured in that initial CBA upfront test? Yeah, it's, it's all captured in the CBA. We do repeat our positive results to ensure that, you know, that it, that it is truly positive, but we are sticking with this uh, single methodology for this particular antibody. We do see it on the, on the tissue-based immunofluorescence, but at this point in time, we don't have a clear sense of whether that will capture all of the patients. And it can be a little tricky to recognize the staining pattern because it's, it's sort of a, 
pan cerebrum sort of staining pattern, uh, granular layer of the cerebellum a little more prominent. Uh, but there are a lot of things that look like that. So I think it's uh, right now we're just kind of going with 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 this cell based assay, which we have a high level of confidence in, and that's what we the same method that we use for say detecting. LGI-1 antibody, we also use it for screening and very often reporting an NBA receptor antibody as well. Thanks for that clarity, Dr. McKeown. I think it's helpful for our users to understand that there won't be any extra time necessary for reflexes or extra cost associated with that. But I wanted to identify, you mentioned CSF and serum specimen type. Is there one that's preferable over the other, or do we really recommend both for this biomarker? I think at this stage, I'd recommend doing both. We have occasionally come across patients that were serum positive only that had the disease. And they may have been patients who perhaps had sort of a, a longer time frame of uh, disease symptomatology. And so they may have been kind of towards the end of the sort of the disease process. So it's, it's kind of hard to know. Uh, so I, I think overall right now we're recommending submitting both. Great. Thank you for that. And then it's also noteworthy to point out that this is a standalone test. It is not being included into our phenotype-specific evaluations yet. Can you be really clear with our users about what phenotypes should this biomarker be considered in combination with? Yeah, I think the, the autoimmune encephalopathy, autoimmune epilepsy, and our pediatric DNS autoimmune evaluations. Great. So if a physician is considering uh, our encephalopathy, epilepsy, or pediatric evaluations, they should also consider adding a GABA-A receptor standalone test to make sure that they're doing a comprehensive review. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is. Just to clarify, though, the, the phenotype, particularly for the pediatric, because the pediatric CNS could cover spinal cord as well, the, the phenotype that, that is of note here is encephalopathy with seizures, and the patients typically have multifocal, large, cerebral, temporal and extratemporal T2 signal abnormalities without enhancement. So it looks a little like ADEM in some respects, except you don't have the enhancement or the brain stem or spinal cord lesions. That's kind of the typical phenotype. So if patients, you know, if you see patients with that, you should definitely order GABA-A. Great, that is really helpful. I also wanted to acknowledge the standalone nature of this test, Dr. McKeown. We've had a few tests that we launched in MCL as standalones, as opposed to including them right in the panel. MA2 comes to mind, Kelch 11. Can you give our listeners a little bit of background on why these tests are being launched by themselves? And is that changing? Is the stance of Mayo Clinic Labs changing on whether comprehensive evaluations are still the most appropriate method? Comprehensive evaluations are definitely preferred. This is more of a logistical issue because of the way laboratory information uh, systems are set up in various hospitals around the country. Um, it's not practical to just um, incorporate every antibody into an evaluation right off the bat once it's ready. So we have a choice, which is wait until our clients are ready to build it into the evaluations or just launch the test. So our preference is to launch the test and get it out there so our clients have access and our patients have access, but then to build it into the evaluation on the back end. Great. That makes perfect sense, Dr. McKeown. We're trying to minimize the impact on our clients' IT systems. So periodically we make large updates and we don't want to wait on an important antibody like this. So that was really helpful. The other thing you mentioned was how this biomarker has been around for 10 years, but there are very few other options for GABA currently on the market. 
Can you speak to kind of why it's taken so long to bring this essay live? Well, I think it's just it's one of those ones where it's maybe a little little tricky as far as just establishing a good, reliable methodology for it. That's really the being the main barrier kind of held us back in terms of offering this as a clinical test. Good. Thanks, Dr. McKeown. I mean, Mayo Clinic Labs, of course, prides itself on developing laboratory-developed tests, so I'm glad that we can offer this to patients. Let's talk about how it will impact patients. You've mentioned previously the specificity, immunotherapy responsiveness, its uh, kind of prevalence. Can we go in the weeds a little bit more on exactly what types of patients physicians should be considering this test in? Yeah, sure. I think uh, the the main patients to consider will be those presenting with encephalopathy, typically with seizures, and they can be both temporal and extratemporal seizures. So sometimes we think of autoimmune encephalitis as only being associated with limbic encephalitis or limbic seizures to temporal seizures, but we do see extratemporal disease in these patients too. So it's it's usually temporal and extratemporal in my experience. Uh, the patients radiologically will have these sort of larger looking T2 lesions in both the temporal lobes and in other parts of the cerebral hemispheres. And uh, they can be in the white matter, often uh, close to the cortex or juxtacortical, so near the gray matter. And the lesions don't enhance when we give gadolinium. And we don't typically see brainstem or spinal cord involvement. So it's kind of, you know, so there, so there is kind of a quite a specific phenotypic flavor to this. Of course, once we launch the test and it goes live, you know, sometimes we'll see other kind of phenotypes or other features, you know, so that, for instance, there have been things like when this was initially reported um, out of Barcelona, they, they had mentioned that there were some patients who had still person syndrome that had kind of GABA receptor antibodies. Now, you know, we haven't really delved into that yet. And so we're not offering it for that, for that purpose, but it may be of interest to some people to uh, test for that particularly maybe in seronegative stiff person patients or something. But I do want to emphasize the main focus and main reason for, for launching this is in relation to encephalitis. Dr. McKeown, would you say that every time a physician orders our encephalopathy evaluation, they should be adding GABA-A on? Since you're seeing patients and you just described the phenotype, is mm. that a relatively common presentation for all encephalitis or would it be a subset? It's a subset. Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, for your typical sort of limbic encephalitis cases, probably be a good idea just to, to order the autoimmune encephalopathy or autoimmune epilepsy evaluations to begin with. And then, of course, if, if the patients are negative and you're kind of thinking, well, you know, this is a seronegative case, we're kind of wondering, you could order GABA-A receptor antibody. We don't really know. I would suspect it could be kind of low yield given that there is a more specific phenotype associated. But of course, as I said, as time goes on and a test is sort of launched, sometimes we'll find sort of associations over time. So I think that subset though that I described a few minutes ago would be kind of the sweet spot for ordering this test. Perfect. And does that recommendation change at all in pediatric patients, Dr. McKeown? Is it more, you mentioned that it's more prevalent? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, it's, it, I think that phenotypically it's kind of the same let's just say the profile of antibodies that we see in children is different to what we see in adults. So it's it's very much dominated by NMDA receptor antibody. But then there are other antibodies that just don't, we just don't see in children at all. 
like CRIM5 or 2, and so we don't include those in, in our pediatric evaluations. But GABA-A receptor antibody does account for a sizable percentage of the patients that are NMDA receptor antibody negative. So I think it's, you know, for the pediatric population, I think it's, it's, it's worth probably being a little more liberal in terms of te- ordering that test when, when you get a negative evaluation in particular, and also with that specific phenotype that I mentioned. Great. And let's talk a little bit about how these test results could impact patient care. Dr. McKeown, you mentioned immunotherapy responsiveness. What else does it tell a physician if the results come back positive? For adult patients in particular, we need to be thinking about underlying cancer or underlying neoplasm because sometimes neoplasms aren't malignant. So thymoma, so it would be the classic association with that, but there have been other tumor types associated, breast and lung cancer. And so I think it's worth, certainly worth uh, screening for uh, cancer in adult patients in particular. And what is the, if you have this number off the top of your head, Dr. McKeown, the oncological association? I mean, is it uh, one of those very high risk antibodies? Does GABA fall into that category or is it, you know, 50% of the time we find some type of a underlying cancer? Yeah, it's, it's more like kind of a 40 to 50% range. So more of a medium risk. Okay. And how about in the pediatric population? I know cancer is not as big of a risk there. So what does GABA-A tell a physician, maybe a pediatric neurologist, if it comes back positive? For the most part, it would be that this is an antibody marker of autoimmune encephalitis, that there's low likelihood of cancer being found. But my own practice would be what I recommend, you know, in children is that you kind of, you got to look, like, you know, because they could have an underlying tumor. So for example, you know, with NMDA receptor encephalitis, we find ovarian teratoma less often than we do find it in women in their 30s. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So we, you still have to look. So I think that sort of a broad search for pediatric age group rather than tumors is important. So you could in particular look for neuroblastoma, which is one that kind of crops up in this paraneoplastic pediatric context. You mentioned the responsiveness to therapy. Is there a particular type of treatment that, you know, if a GABA-A test comes back positive, it should lead a physician towards a certain treatment option? Because this is a rare disease, like all of these others, you know, there, there isn't kind of a well-worn pathway to treatment, but there are some general principles that are applicable. The sense is, through some other publications, is that this antibody not only is a biomarker of the disease, but also is pathophysiologically relevant. So it actually causes disease. The experience generally with, with diseases that are antibody mediated is that they respond well to immunotherapies in general. My own practice will be to treat upfront with high dose steroids and plasma exchange, and then to dose with uh, two grams of rituximab or the equivalent pediatric dose uh, right after the plasma exchanges are finished and probably keep some steroid going at high doses for a while and gradually taper that. So that's, uh, you know, in the couple of cases I've treated, that that has been um, successful. I think that's invaluable, Dr. McKeown. Thanks for sharing your individual experience. Such a unique opportunity here at Mayo Clinic Labs to have you all both in the laboratory and seeing patients. So just to summarize for our listeners, Dr. McKeown, it sounds like this is a you know relatively common, specific 
immunotherapy responsive biomarker. I'm really excited that we can offer this test to patients. I also wrote down that it gives the physician confidence in the diagnosis of autoimmune encephalitis. So those are the things I'm excited about, Dr. McKeown. What are you most excited about related to the launch of this new test? Yeah, I think that's what kind of excites me is that it's it's an opportunity for doctors to be able to diagnose and confirm autoimmune encephalitis in patients where they suspect that. There are a lot of patients out there that are seronegative. That's particularly true in pediatrics, actually, that, that we see more seronegative autoimmune encephalitis cases, where otherwise they meet kind of diagnostic criteria or at least probable criteria for an autoimmune encephalitis. But if you don't have that, it can be challenging, you know, because they're always kind of at the back of people's mind. There's a competing, is there a competing diagnosis here, like a genetic disease or, you know, or a brain infection or something else? And then that can really sometimes hold people back in terms of their confidence in treating aggressively and appropriately and early. Great. No, really exciting. Uh, reducing uncertainty for physicians. That's what we're here to do. So thanks for your time, Dr. McKeown. Was there anything else that you wanted to add about this test? No, I think that this is um, a great advance for our laboratory practice and will be also for patient care as well. So I'm really excited about this. So thank you for your interest, Ben. You bet. Thank you for your work. And thanks to all the listeners. Uh, we appreciate you joining us today, Dr. McKeown. I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.